0: I grew up in a church that taught the Bible means exactly what it says, unless it's talking about end time events, in which case it never means what it says, because all end time prophecy is symbolic in nature. So, what about it? Should we understand end time Bible prophecy to mean what it says, or should we spiritualize it? Stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, Greetings, in the name of Jesus, our Blessed Hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. My co-host Nathan Jones and I have a very special guest in the studio with us today. He is Alan Parr, who is an outstanding evangelist based in McKinney, Texas.
2: Alan, it is so great to have you, man. I have been following your beat <laughs> on YouTube for a while now. And to have you here, can I give you one of those coronavirus Absolutely. greetings? Yes. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> well, before we get into it, could you tell folks a little about your background, how you got saved, and how you came into your ministry? Yeah, so
1: for me, it started off in 1982, and I was blessed to have two parents who absolutely adored uh, me and my sister. But uh, in 1982, they got a divorce, and the divorce was really, really difficult for my dad. And uh, as a result, my dad wasn't a believer whenever they were married. And so um, he gave his life to the Lord as a result of the divorce. It was just so devastating for him that he really didn't know who to turn to. And for the first time in his life he turned to the Lord, and the Lord got a hold of him and called him to the ministry. And so, I was six years old at the time. And um, uh, about two years after that when I was eight years old my father led myself and my uh, sister to the Lord. And uh, even at a young age, at the age of eight I really understood the Gospel and accepted the Gospel. But to be fair I, I really didn't have a strong relationship with Christ, um, when I was a youth and also through high school until I got to college. And I had okay. someone that poured into me and someone discipled me and took me aside and really showed me what it meant to really live my life for the Lord. And so, that's when my journey with God and Christ and really studying the Word and getting into the Scriptures really really emerged. So when
2: did the Lord give you a wife?
1: <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I, I would love to have said that when I was in my early 20's or mid 20's, but my journey was much different. Um, I did not get married for the first time. I was, I'm only married once, and uh, my beautiful wife Jennifer. And uh, we have two children, uh, Anaya and Micah. They are three and two. I didn't get married until I was 40 years old. So, I had a very unique
0: journey of being a single guy for a very, very long time. Well, now, you were an electrical engineer weren't you? Yes, when the lord called you? Yes. And that was a difficult decision to make, wasn't it? It was. Uh, it, I say that it was really the hardest easiest
1: decision that I've ever had <laughs> to make in my life because I was working as an engineer for 2 years in and Detroit, making Michigan, good money, right? Making very good money. Yeah, I was um, you know, I was 22 at the time, making good money. Uh, single, had the life, if you will, and then the and Lord says, "Give it all up." And the Lord says, "Yes." <laughs> and you, you know, obeyed. I did, wow. and, and uh, at the time, I just remember God kind of putting on my heart and saying, "Hey, if money was not an issue, you know, if, if 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 we took that completely out of the equation, would you dedicate your life to serving God and um, you know really teaching the Word of God, or would you stay in a career that you don't feel fulfilled and called in?" And I felt so clearly that God was leading me to go to ministry. So I,
2: where did you end up to going to? to seminary?
1: Yeah, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, which oh, is right. how I ended up yeah, here in Dallas. Dallas. Yeah. Well,
2: and okay. you're also a talented musician too, right? Uh,
1: I have led worship for many, many years. I, I play the piano and sing, and so I don't do as much now, but I did it for a very, very long time. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I want to get into this uh, what we're going to discuss in this program with that theological background and all. Uh, we appreciate you sharing your your journey with us and. I want to get into this with this question. I mentioned at the very beginning of the program that I grew up in a church that said all end time Bible prophecy is symbolic. Everything else in the Bible means what it says. And in fact when, when I couldn't figure that out when I was a teenager and finally I asked some guy that was coming through that seemed to know what he was talking about. He was a traveling evangelist. I said, why is end time prophecy doesn't mean what it says? The first coming prophecies meant what they said. He said, because it's apocalyptic. Scared me to death. I didn't know if that was a disease or <laughs> what. So what about it? Is does end time prophecy mean what it says or not? You know, and
1: thinking about the book of Revelation, you know, because we have we know that a lot of the end time prophecies are Daniel and Revelation. And one of the things that I think that really confuse people that we have to really remember is that when John was giving us this vision, of the book of Revelation, it was just that. It was a vision. I mean he's he's trying his best to try to explain to us what God has put on his heart and, and this vision. And I always tell people, if you had a dream at night and you tried to explain to people what that dream was all about, I mean you're doing your best to try to explain things and John is doing his best to try to explain things that, you know, may not have even existed in his time, but now is Present with us. And so, when we think about this idea of symbols or symbolism in the uh, the apocalyptic literature, we think about symbols are all throughout the New Testament. You know, when Jesus said, I am the door, was Jesus really a door, right? No. Was Jesus really a shepherd when He says, I am the good shepherd? Well, we know that these are just symbols for His character and His nature. But they have a literal meaning. But they have a literal meaning, exactly. So, the question is, Should we just take everything that we see in the scriptures and not use common sense and just assume that it's you know it's um, literal, right? There's certain things that are symbolic, and so once again, when we look at the book of Revelation, there's some things that are very clear. When John says he sees angels surrounding the throne, we should look at that and say, okay, yeah, he probably saw angels surrounding the throne of God. But whenever he says you know things like uh, uh, I saw a thousand. Uh, people here, a thousand people, that numbers are symbolic oftentimes, or the number seven is symbolic for perfection. So when we see the number six, that's one less than perfection, which is r- symbolic of imperfection. And you have colors and yeah. different things like that. And so I think that we have to be careful not looking at every single thing in the book of Revelation or apocalyptic literature as being symbolic but we have to use discernment in terms of what is and what isn't.
2: Well, the beauty of Revelation is that a lot of times it will explain what the symbols are like the great sign of Revelation 12, yes. for instance, who the woman is and who the child is. Or you can go back to the Old Testament and you can understand because of the symbols would be explained as there as well.
1: Exactly. I mean thinking about um, Revelation chapter 1 where it talks about the lampstands and uh, John saw seven lampstands. And it could be easy to look at that and say did he really see lampstands? But if you keep reading in that chapter, it churches. very clearly yeah. says these seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, um, oftentimes, what may appear to be confusing uh, can easily be explained, or is later on
0: explained in the scripture. Well, it seems to me if the first coming prophecies meant what they said, we should expect the second coming prophecies to mean what they said. I mean, when I my turnaround came with the book of Zechariah of, of all things, because. Uh, The book of Zechariah has all these first coming prophecies in it that were literally fulfilled, and yet it's an apocalyptic book. And I would suspect that what it says about the second coming of Jesus are going to be literally fulfilled. One of the rules we use around here is if the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense, or you'll end up with nonsense. And when uh, Uh, The founder of the Institute for Creation Research, what's his name? Uh, Henry Morris. When he wrote his commentary on the Book of Revelation, I love what he said at the beginning. He said, "The book. I'm writing this because people tell me the Book of Revelation is hard to understand." He said, "It's not hard to understand. It's hard to believe. If you'll believe it, you'll understand it." Amen. How about that? Amen.
2: So, Well, Alan one of the uh, reasons that so many churches and pastors end up spiritualizing Bible prophecy is they've adopted what is called replacement theology which I'm sure you are familiar with. The idea that the church is, is replaced Israel, God is done with the Jews, He has no meaning for them. So, when they get to prophecies that talk about a literal Israel and a literal Jewish yeah. people they don't know what to do so they spiritualize and make it the church. How would you respond to churches and pastors who take a replacement theology position?
1: Yeah, you know um, I think replacement <clears throat> theology clearly needs to be rejected for a few reasons. Uh, first and foremost it's, it's not biblical. Uh, you know there's enough scriptures that we can look at that clearly uh, distinguish God's plan for the church and God's plan for Israel and the fact that God still has a plan for Israel, like Romans nine through eleven. Like Romans nine through eleven, for instance, Romans <laughs> eleven, where Paul says, "Hey, you know, I my, has God rejected the Jews?" And he says, "Absolutely not. I myself am an Israelite." And so, you know, we can look at that. We can look at scriptures in Jeremiah where he talks about, um, you know, his plan for uh, his people. We can look at Zechariah chapter eight where he talks about once again his plan for his people. So, first and foremost replacement theology is just not biblical but then not only that it's it's not logical and I, what i mean by that is it doesn't make sense that god would replace all of his promises that he had with one group of sinful people and put it on to another group of sinful people which is the church. I mean the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So to suggest this idea that okay God got rid of Israel because they were so <laughs> bad and they were so sinful and so evil so that he could now bless the church. Well, the church is also sinful. So it's it's not biblical, it's not logical, and it's also not theological either. And how can we be of... assured he's going to keep the promises he's made to the church? Exactly. <laughs> well, and I was getting ready to say that because it also it, it, it creates this idea that we can't trust god because he said yeah. in the old testament hey i'm going to bless you and i'm going to bless those who bless you and i bless you with all this land but then whenever you turn away from me then oh okay well i'm not going to bless you anymore all my prom-. so it, it creates this idea or this picture or character of god that he's not trustworthy or we can't mm-hmm. depend upon him or he's not
0: a promise keeping i went to god. a good example of this i went to a theological seminary one time and i took a look I spent a whole day doing this. I took a look at what all of the commentaries had to say about Revelation chapter 7 where it says that 144,000 Jews are going to be sealed by God for a special mission and it even mentions them by tribes and 85% of all the commentaries said that was speaking of the church.
2: And the church always gets the blessings but they never inherit the curses I always find that interesting <laughs> very interesting yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. so uh, it's a sad thing replacement theology is dominant it uh, is the theology of the vast majority of churches in the world today and it just simply um, a lot of it is a lot of it I wouldn't say all of it but a lot of it is rooted in anti-semitism and I was getting ready to ex-
1: yeah, I was getting ready to say that as well because you know if, if you if you look at it from the perspective of if God rejected these people, if God has no plan for them, if God has already shunned this group of people, then therefore maybe we should follow suit and also, you know, treat these, uh, treat the Jewish people in that same way. And um, once again, many people believe that that has led to or encouraged, um, you know, an anti-Semitic type of. And a lot of that is
0: rooted then. in the teaching that emerged in the early church that the Jews were Christ killers, and therefore they have been. Uh, Put aside by God. But in Acts chapter chapter 4 and verse 27 we are told who killed Jesus. For truly in this city, speaking of Jerusalem, they were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You did anoint, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. So, who killed Jesus? It says Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, Jews, and you and me, because He died for everyone who had sinned. Amen.
2: Hello, my name is Nathan Jones, internet evangelist here at Lamb & Lion Ministries. We're using the internet to proclaim the soon return of Jesus Christ to the billions of people who are connected online now and after the rapture. I would like to invite you to come and check out our website at ChristinProphecy.org. Watch whole episodes of Christ in Prophecy and our short prophetic perspectives and the inbox series for in-depth teaching about end time events. Read from the library of articles on our website and blog covering all aspects of God's prophetic Word. Subscribe to our free e-newsletter to receive the Lamplighter magazine, as well as to our social media to stay up to date on current events as they relate to Bible prophecy. Equip yourself to share the good news with others using materials from our online store. I invite you to come and visit Christandprophecy.org today. Welcome back to Christ in Prophecy and our discussion of the interpretation of Bible prophecy. We have thus far established the fact that all of Bible prophecy should be interpreted for its plain sense meaning. And now, using that principle, we're going to ask our special guest, Alan Parr, to give us a quick overview of the book of Revelation. Go for it, Alan.
1: All right. Well, no pressure, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just cover the, the entire book, book of, of Revelation. Revelation right?
1: uh, you know, it's interesting because so many people feel like the book of Revelation is so difficult to understand and afraid to read it. And as a result, many Christians just reject reading this book. They'll read 65 books of the Bible, and they'll just say, oh, I don't want to deal with the book of Revelation. But I think whenever we look at it from an overview perspective, I think that um, we can understand it if we break it down into different parts. And so, we'll try to do just an overview of the book of Revelation in the time that we have. So, first and foremost, we want to make sure that everybody understands that it's not the book of Revelations, (laughs) plural, as many people will uh, mistakenly say. But it is in the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the unveiling of His plan. So, the first thing we need to understand about the book of Revelation is that it's really all about Jesus Christ. It's all about His plan, and His purpose, and the person of Christ. And so, uh, chapter 1 is all about that. And then when we have uh, chapters 2 and 3 we are moving into these seven letters that John was writing to churches that were located in Asia minor, minor at the time. And many scholars have believed, and there's different interpretations in terms of whether these seven churches were literal churches. We do believe they were literal churches at, at the time, but uh, many of them believe that they are representative of churches today. And so, we could potentially look at uh, Revelation 2 and 3 as kind of the church age, right, where uh, different churches, you have suffering churches, you have disobedient churches. But then in chapters 4 and 5, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. And John is in heaven, He was having a vision in heaven, and he's... He's envisioning certain things that are happening, and and he sees God the Father sitting on the throne, and he sees this lamb, and uh, in the hand of God. So we've tried to paint a picture for you. In God's hand, there's this scroll, and so he sees the vision of this scroll, and on this scroll, as the lamb takes this scroll, there's seven seals on this scroll. So if you could just picture a book that has seven seals, and so we have this this picture in heaven that uh, in Revelation four and five. And so, now as the Lamb takes this scroll and out of the hand of God the Father who is sitting in the throne, each time this Lamb peels back a scroll, uh, a, uh, one of the seals on the scroll rather, there is a judgment that proceeds from Heaven to Earth. And this is when the Antichrist, who is one of the key figures in the book of Revelation, enters in the scene. And so, if you want to just take a look at uh, Revelation 6 all the way through Revelation 19. There's that 14 chapter break there where we're going to describe that as the seven year tribulation period. And it's during this time that the Antichrist is up to no good. And <laughs> if we want to also break that seven years up into two different breaks. So, we'll have it the first three and a half years, we'll call that the tribulation period. And then the last three and a half years, scholars have referred to that as the Great Tribulation period. And if we think things are going to be bad in the first three and a half years, they're going to get even worse on the other side of the uh, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now, during this seven years, you've got three different series of judgments that are going to be proceeding from heaven. Down to earth. Now we may ask the question, what is the purpose of these judgments? Why is God so angry? So we have to remember that uh, on the cross of Jesus Christ, all of the sins of those who place their faith in Christ were paid for. And so God is no longer angry at those of us who place our faith in Christ because He's taken out all of that anger and all of that wrath on His Son, Jesus Christ. But for those who are not believers, the wrath of God still exists because we have two sides of God. We have the love of God and we have the justice of God. Both of them are, equ- are, are, are sides of God that He must fulfill. And so in the book of Revelation 6 through 19, we see God fulfilling the wrath of God. He's, 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 he's judging sin for once and for all. And in three different series. So, the first they call the seal judgments, because there are seven seals that peel back from this book, and each time there is a certain judgment that goes out. Uh, Many of them are going to affect the earth, whether it's the drinking water, or other different things that are going on. But then after these these six seals, these six seals are peeled back, on the seventh seal, when that seventh seal opens, that unleashes the second different type of judgments called the trumpet judgments. And so, John, once again, is, is envisioning all of this, and he envisions these seven angels with these trumpets. And each time a trumpet is played, another judgment proceeds from heaven to earth to inflict. The inhabitants that are on the earth, and once again, if one third of the of the uh, waters were undrinkable now, then now there's two thirds of them that are undrinkable because with each series of judgments, it just gets more and more intense, and then you also have this. Third type of judgment, or this third wave of judgments, which are called the seven bowl judgments. And so, once again, John trying to describe everything as best he can, he envisions these angels with this bowl, and inside of this, these bowls contains the wrath of God. And so, if you can imagine these, these angels just standing up above uh, earth, if you will, and pouring out the wrath of God, and each time a bowl is poured out, You have another judgment that's going to be taking place. And during this time, once again, uh, you have certain things that are happening, like the mark of the beast, where if you want to buy and sell, you need to take the mark of the beast. And if you don't, you're going to be persecuted during these seven years. And so, it's going to be very, very difficult for people to be saved. And uh, there's going to be, in God's grace, there's going to be people uh, who were not raptured. And actually, I better go back a little bit here, because we just missed the fact that many scholars believe after Revelation chapter 3, through uh, uh, basically after Revelation chapter 3, The church is not mentioned for the rest of the book of Revelation. So you don't have this idea of the church mentioned in 6 through 19, which leads many scholars to believe that uh, the church has been raptured. We have been removed from earth. And so the only people that are left behind are those who God, in His grace, will allow to have another opportunity to place their faith in Him, but it's going to be very, very difficult for them to do so because. Um, of all of the persecution that's going to be going on on the earth, and so once again, if you are a believer, it's going to be difficult because you're not going to be able to buy, you're not going to be able to sell, and uh, but um, God is going to be allowing many people to be saved because there's going to be all sorts of evangelists. Many of them are going to be Jewish evangelists that He's going to seal and protect. Uh, the Bible talks about there being 12,000 from all of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you're going to have 144,000 at least Jewish evangelists that are going to be covered and protected and sealed by God that will be spreading the gospel to help people come to a saving faith in Christ. And so after this period, this seven year tribulation period from Revelation 6 through 19, you have this. This huge battle, if you will, and uh, you may have heard of it. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. And if you could just imagine basically two, two armies coming together, and so you have uh, the army of God, and this is what we refer to as the literal second coming of Christ. And so we want to distinguish between, and I know that many, some people have diff- different views on this, but we want to distinguish between the rapture, which we believe occurred before the seven year tribulation period. And then the second coming of Christ, where Christ is now coming back with his saints. And we believe that the rapture, Christ is coming back for his saints. With the rapture, we believe that Christ is going to meet us in the sky or in the clouds, if we look at 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians. Uh, But also with the second coming, we believe that uh, Christ is going to set foot on the earth and he's going to come back with his saints. And there's going to be this battle of Armageddon obviously we know it's not going to be much of a battle because we know that in the end God wins. And so, if we are on His team He is going to defeat the devil and His henchmen, the false prophet and the Antichrist. And so, there is going to be a thousand year millennial reign that follows The second coming of Christ in this seven year tribulation period. And this is going to be a time of righteousness, peace, and joy. And the devil, the dragon, is going to be locked up for a thousand years. So there's no influence of sin. It's going to be a peaceful time. And also, uh, at the end of these thousand years, God, for whatever reason, is going to allow the devil to be released from, um, from his bondage for a very short period of time. And then you have a series of judgments. Okay, so you have the enemy, uh, Satan is gonna be judged once and for all. And he, along with all those who do not place their faith in Christ, are gonna be cast into the lake of fire where they will spend eternity apart from God. Now, that's all of the bad news right there. But the good news is that just like the first two chapters in the Bible represented a time of perfection and peace and joy. The last two chapters in the Bible also represent a time of happiness, peace, and joy because there is going to be this time. And we also talked about, uh, we missed the the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's going to be when Christ and his bride are going to come together, the bride of Christ being the body of Christ, the church. Uh, And so now we're united with Christ, and we are basically going to spend our eternity with Christ. But many people think it's going to be on earth. But the Bible talks about that this earth that we have right now is going to be burned up because it's not fit for eternity. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and it's on that new heaven, on that new earth, where God is going to take away every tear. There's going to be no more tears, no more crying, no more death, no more sorrow. All of the old things have passed away. And so we are going to spend eternity. With God in the new Heaven and the new Earth." So, what is the application? If we know that we are going to spend eternity with Christ forever, that means that we should focus on sowing into the Kingdom of God, because eternity is a very, very long time. I heard somebody put it like this, if you took one piece of grain from the seashore, and every year you throw that piece of grain into the sea, if After you get done throwing every single piece of grain into the sea one time per year you will have been in eternity for one second. That's how long eternity is. And that's how long we're going to have the opportunity to celebrate and be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
2: Alan, it's been incredible having you here. Thank you so much, man. Can you tell folks how they can get in touch with your ministry?
1: Sure thing. The easiest way is to go to my website, alanparr.com, or you can find us on YouTube by going to the Beat
0: Alan Parr. We have uh, several videos there, and you can uh, meet us there. Well, thank you, Alan, again for being with us. You've just blessed our socks off, as we say in Texas. Well, folks, that's our program for today. I uh, hope that it has been a blessing to you as it has been to us, and I hope too. That you will be back with us next week, the Lord willing. Until then, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, Look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. The classic book on the interpretation of Bible prophecy is this one by Dr. Paul Lee Tong. It was originally published back in 1974, but it has been reprinted many times since then. I have read many such books about biblical interpretation, but this is by far the best one. I highly recommend it to you. It runs 282 pages in length, plus 150 pages of helpful appendices, and it covers every aspect of Biblical interpretation with a special emphasis on the problems that relate to the interpretation of Bible prophecy. The book presents all the arguments for interpreting Bible prophecy for its plain sense meaning, and it clearly demonstrates the dangers of spiritualizing or allegorizing prophecy. The book can be yours for a gift of $20 or more including the cost of shipping. To order, call the number you see on the screen, or place your order through our website address that is also on the screen. If you call please do so Monday through Friday between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Central Time. Just ask for the book by Paul Lee Tong concerning the interpretation of Bible prophecy.